This is The Guardian. Others and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. No more hope for Brighton as Powell steps down after an 8 0 thrashing at home to Tottenham. Reading come out on top in the battle at the bottom. Arsenal bag their record 13th win. While actions speak louder than words, is everyone taking the Rainbow Laces campaign seriously? We'll discuss all that plus the rest of the weekend's action. Take your questions, and that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Good morning, Susie Rack. Good morning. Oh, that was a livelier good morning than I normally get from you. That's because you've been out and about already. I know, right? I've already done my power walk to the school and back. Wonderful. Wonderful. God, I've literally rolled, rolled out of bed. Moyo Abiona has not rolled out of bed because she's wearing a beautiful, very comfortable looking (laughs) vest. Um, Yes, I have been awake for about an hour and a half now. So all good, feeling lively. Uh, just me being lazy then in that case. Um, Stillman, <laughs> very good morning to you. I have a very important question because this morning when I went to send out the Twitter any questions question, um, I could not find you. And I could not find you because you have become the Stillmanator. <laughs> when did you become the Stillmanator? That was a decision I made yesterday. So my previous Twitter handle was Stillberto, which was obviously a tribute to the former Arsenal and Atletico Mineiro players, Gilberto Silva. But he made um, an Instagram post over the weekend in support of a Brazilian presidential candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, who I will delicately say is not aligned to my own values and politics. So I decided to make the change on that basis. I applaud that. (laughs) Well, now I'm pleased. I was slightly worried that you'd been watching a little bit too much American Pie and uh, <laughs> and trying to Shermanator yourself. So I'm pleased it was for the right reasons. Uh, right, let's kick things off, shall we? And only really one place to start. Brighton nil, Tottenham eight. And Brighton's announcement on Monday that Hope Powell has stepped down as first team manager with immediate effect. Powell, the third longest serving manager in the WSL behind Emma Hayes and Kelly Chambers. She'd been in charge of the club since 2017. Susie, our first managerial departure of the WSL season. I don't quite think it's a merry-go-round just yet, but it's a it's a big one. Hope Powell has been a, a trailblazer for the women's game in England. Results obviously not been great for Brighton of late, but it's still a real shame to see her go. Yeah, and I think it was a really important like appointment when she took charge in 2017. Like she really kind of elevated Brighton and made them be able to compete in the Women's Super League in a really serious way, embarked on a lot of changes in terms of, you know, lots of us have had tours of their new training ground and things like that. And it's, you know, the best facilities in the league, arguably, maybe next to City. And little things like that that she's been been instrumental to, professionalising the setup at Brighton for them rising into the Women's Super League. So she's done an incredible job there. I don't think anyone would look at it and say that it's been a failure of a, of a tenure by any stretch, but one win from five matches, that really heavy defeat. Whilst they've done all this work on the back room, they've not done as much work on the squad and really developing that squad. And they've had trouble hanging on to players and getting them to, you know, want to really commit to that environment for the long term. And that's 
that's the problem really and I think that's where it's come a, a little bit unstuck for her. Yeah as Susie says Tim a lot of turnover recently players in the summer but also their general manager Polly Bancroft appointed as Manchester United's new director of women's football now Powell's departure on top of that it feels as if the club's in a bit of flux. Yeah definitely and they might have looked at their opponents on Sunday Tottenham who about this time two years ago made quite a similar call in getting rid of uh, Juan Amaros and Karen Hills who'd both done similar to Hope Powell very very good job building Tottenham up but they made that call. They went for Rianne Skinner and I think Tottenham have gone to a different level. And Maybe Brighton are looking at something like that and thinking we shouldn't be getting turned over 8-0 by Spurs. We should be on their level. I think um, maybe a couple of things have happened here. I think, first of all, we all know what to expect from a Hope Powell team. They're very organised, usually difficult to break down. I think maybe after a few years, players tap out of that style a bit. But also, as you say, they've they've lost important players. And I think really critical is they lost both their fullbacks over the summer, Coivisto and Maya Letizia. And they're very young in those fullback positions now. They've got Georgia Fox and Poppy Pattinson, both very exciting teenagers, but teenagers. And I think when you're playing in a Hope Powell side and you really rely on that defensive solidity, I think that's been a bit of a problem for Hope and she hasn't really found a solution for it. And and I do think the time is probably right for all parties to move on. What next for Hope Powell, Susie? Good question. I think she could pick up a job in the league. You don't want to necessarily look at managers who are struggling elsewhere, but that you know there's a few that are finding it difficult in the Women's Super League where she could do a really good job at sort of steadying things. And I think a fresh team might suit her. That said, national team management is always, you know, somewhere we should go. Or I would say, you know, seeing her at the back room at a club um, where she's just so effective at, at pushing and driving change at board level, as she's shown over the years, you know, in the FA and then at Brighton as well, like could be huge, you know, as a like sort of director of women's football type role somewhere she'd be, or general manager, she'd be absolutely superb. So, there's plenty of options. I think she'll be in high demand. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw her like in a any Aluko style role somewhere doing that kind of thing. Yeah, you're nodding, Moyo. What what for you is next for Brighton? Yeah, I think with Brighton, I guess they sort of need to decide whether they want to go for an, like an up and coming coach, like similar to the route that Leicester have tried to take with Lydia. Or they want to go for someone that's more of a staple in women's football in general and try and get that sort of solidity they had with hope, but a rejuvenated version by getting someone new. But yeah, it's just going to depend on that. But obviously they're going to need to sort out the rest of the staff as well, which is obviously the bigger task at hand. There are a couple of really good managers available as well. You know, you look at like the likes of Willie Kirk or Mark Parsons, you know, people who are sort of floating around waiting for an opportunity. And Brighton is quite a nice prospect because of the support from the top. Yeah. Amy Merricks, the assistant manager, is taking charge at West Ham on Sunday uh, with support by Alex Penny and Perry Northeast. But we really have to talk about Tottenham Moyo because it was easily their biggest ever WSL win. Um, Rianne Skinner has been criticised in the past and we've talked on this pod before about their, their lack of goals apart from a couple of players and that she's not necessarily an attacking manager. But I mean, they blew them away, didn't they? I know Brighton, in many parts, were architects of their own downfall, but the goals from Molly Bartrip, Nicola Karczewska, two from Ashley Neville again, Drew Spence with two, and Jess Naz with two as well. It was an impressive performance. 
Very, very. To be honest, like I was watching it on the train coming back from Southampton and all I was thinking to myself was I never knew that Tottenham could score this many goals. And to be honest, like the quality of the goals, as you said, was was really good. But also like you could see little partnerships really forming on the pitch with some of those goals. So like, for example, one of the Drew Spence goals, the back heel from Ashley Neville, like you can just see even in recent weeks that those two have really been connecting on the pitch. And I feel like a lot of that came into fruition this weekend. But obviously, as you said, Tottenham don't score that many goals. And I feel like that's why the writing was kind of on the wall with Hope Powell going. Because I think I saw a stat as well and was like, that was like a third of their total goals last season, which is absolutely insane, to be honest. But it just kind of shows that they have got players that can score. And it's more about getting those players into positions to score in games. Yeah, one of those players is Ash Neville, Tim, and, and Lauren has sent a question in. What more does Ash Neville have to do to get an England call-up? Yeah, I mean, she's. I, I, I think it's been the case for about a year now that surely she must be in the frame. I think maybe one of the things that counts against her is maybe the positional change because we were used to seeing her as a right wing-back, then sometimes she was a left wing-back, but this season they've pushed her right up onto the left wing. Obviously, that's Lauren Hemp's position, and that's probably a little bit more competitive at the moment. But I think she's really benefited from that kind of more advanced role um, as well. And another interesting thing they've done is they kind of play Drew Spence as a striker, which um, I don't think I've ever seen before. And I think Moyo's right that that partnership between Spence and Neville, you, you look at some of the business Tottenham did this summer, bringing in players like Ellie Brazil, like Drew Spence. They brought in a lot of WSL experience, and I think that was quite deliberate. And I really think Ashley Neville has basically just been given a very free role at the moment. She is clearly Tottenham's most prominent attacking threat. And this is the gap that Tottenham have to bridge as well, because that's what they need to challenge that big four, that top three. Their goals conceded last season were about the same as United and City, but they were miles behind on goals scored. And Ashley Neville is obviously a critical part of that. And that's why they're pushing her forward, because they recognise that. Yeah, she's having a great season, isn't she? Um, someone else having a, a really good season, but unfortunately had the show stolen from her in some ways. Uh, Chelsea 3, Aston Villa 1 at King's Meadow. Should have been all about Lauren James, this chat. Two goals and an assist. But it's kind of been overshadowed by Hannah Hampton's absence. And I put that in inverted commas because she was actually in the stands, despite supposedly having been told to be absent. Susie, you broke an exclusive on this yesterday about how Hannah Hampton had been dropped from the England squad post-Euros because of her attitude. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on? Yeah, I mean, there's only so much I can say beyond what's printed. But, you know, I've heard, and I think it's alluded to in the piece, from a lot of sources for quite a long time that there's problems with Hampton's attitude and behaviour and the way she acts in and around squads and teams and you know I've heard that it came to a little bit of a head in the summer during the Euros and it wasn't a very nice environment to be in as a result that's why she's been dropped by England and won't play again potentially under Serena Wiegmann and then you know we're now seeing potentially the results of, of that attitude spilling out at Villa as well. I, I don't think it's Carla Ward in a post-match press conference alluded to some kind of incident that had happened like the day before or something where she told her to stay home, despite the fact that two days before that she had told her she was going to be 
involved in some way and she was in the squad because she was fit again. So that was a bit of a surprise. So clearly something's gone on there that we don't know about. But from what everything I know is that this is not like an isolated incident. It's not like a one-off thing. It's not one explosion or like one outburst. That It is like consistent problems with the way she behaves in and around squads and camps. And that's not a nice thing to say about a young player. And, you know, when you've got a young player who's got a European championship medal and isn't being picked by their national team or their club questions start being asked and suddenly it becomes a story that sort of needs exploring in a way that perhaps maybe I've turned away from this story a little bit for quite a long time because you don't necessarily want to tarnish a young player with a brush of being difficult when they've got a whole lot of developing to do as a person so it's not the easiest of stories to write it's not the nicest of stories to write so when you get people on Twitter and fans going, you know, show us the receipts, what's happened, blah, blah, it's not as straightforward as that because there's not been one sort of like outburst that has triggered things, although clearly something's happened at Villa that we don't know about. Yeah, it's a really difficult situation to talk about because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know where this behaviour is stemming from. And it's really important to say that the Football Association, Aston Villa and Hannah Hampton's representatives that have all declined to comment at the moment on this. But it's such a delicate situation for both Villa and England to have to handle Moyo because she's clearly such an accomplished young goalkeeper. And it's really difficult. Yeah. And one of the conversations that I was having with someone yesterday was just that, like, it was more of a surprise that the story came out because historically, when we think of England players in general, we think of, like, this sort of protection around them, like, around speaking negatively about players within England squads. Um, but at the same time, the fact that it's happened at club level, like, there's been some sort of disconnect at club level as well um, in recent time, obviously stems from that suggestion that is true or in the sense that it's not an isolated incident as you said so I think yeah just the fact that it came out in general obviously speaks volumes but also speaks to like a wider issue as to how players are protected but also needing to report on things that are happening yeah absolutely um Tim just briefly on Chelsea uh I mentioned Lauren James there, absolutely superb start to the season. And they seem to be shifting into gear a little bit after a stuttering start. What what have you made of them? Yeah, definitely. I think obviously they've, you know, last season they came in with a very, very settled squad. This season, you know, Lauren James, for example, coming in, I know she was signed the summer before, but she wasn't really fit last season. And they've tried a few things out. They lost Melanie Leupold, so they've kind of shifted Erin Cuthbert, who's a player that just fascinates me because she just seems to be all things to Chelsea. Wherever they have a gap or a hole, Emma Hayes just seems to throw her into it and she gets on with it. But I think on on Lauren James, I'm really interested in this move because it's another one. You see this a lot with Chelsea. They sign a big player and you think they're fantastic, but where are they getting into this team? And Emma seems to get them in somehow. And I think one of the things Lauren might benefit from is Obviously, we don't know the full story with Fran Kirby's fitness, but I do wonder whether her days of being able to play every single game are, are more or less done and she has to be managed very carefully. And that's that's a real gap that Lauren James can exploit because now Chelsea have that other attacker that you can throw in with Harder and Kerr and, and not really experience any kind of downturn. So I think Lauren James probably is going to benefit from that situation, assuming that Fran, you know, still needs to have her game time managed. 
Mm. Uh, one player trying to steal the headlines herself this weekend, uh, Reading's Rachel Rowe. It finished Reading 2, Leicester 1. An incredible comeback from Reading at the bottom of the WSL. Leicester had gone 1-0 up through Natasha Flint. Looked to be about to secure their first points of the season. But Rachel Rowe decided, no, nah, I'm not finished yet. A goal direct from a corner in the 90th minute and then firing in from distance in the 92nd minute. Wow. A little bit of heart needed from this Reading side and they certainly have it in spades, Susie. Oh my God. I mean, what a finish. Um, throughout that game, I it was sat at the Man United game and I had dual screens up and um, I was paying attention to it and watching it and just thinking about Reading quite a bit, actually, because thinking about how hard Kelly Chambers has worked to keep Reading up and as... A team that lacks consistency but can threaten the top and avoid the the drop fairly easily on very little resources. And I was thinking, is it the are we seeing the moment? Is this the moment that it starts to become apparent that Kelly Chambers can't work magic every single season? You know, is this is this the moment where the lack of resources and the lack of money into the squad and all of that kind of thing suddenly sort of catches up with them a bit? And then they pull off that remarkable recovery, just almost like to stem that thought a little bit. I still think that they're heading that way. The fact that, you know, they've only got three points from their first five games is not like a great result. But when you look at the games against Leicester and, you know, Brighton potentially now and Liverpool, you know, it's really important to get points. And at the start of the season, you would maybe have Reading battling it right at the bottom. So getting three points off of Leicester and in such emphatic style it's going to do wonders for their confidence into the next few games as well yeah how important Moyo are those three points for for Reading yeah massive it was almost a six-pointer to be honest like Leicester would have been looking at that game as one of the ones that they could win they've had some tough fixtures recently so they would have been pointing to this Reading game as where they could get three points potentially and still being one nil up in the 90th minute would have given them great confidence. But but losing it in that manner, I think it would have done more harm to them than good, to be honest. I think obviously people take confidence from like scoring and results and things like that. But but losing it in that manner just kind of points to the the frailties that they do have, both in defense but also like in midfield as well. They were stunning goals, so you can't really take it away from from Rachel Rowe. But yeah, really hard to take for Leicester, but an amazing result for Reading nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, you've been scouring the WSL rulebook and think that actually one relegation spot is not enough to keep teams on their toes. I want to hear your your suggestion. And, and first of all, I want to know whether your suggestion is in this 12-team format or in an extended 14-team format. Yeah, I think we probably are coming to the stage where we can extend when you look at the top of the championship generally quite competitive and actually what happened last year I think was kind of a shame because Liverpool ran away with it but the competition for second in the championship there were about four or five teams battling for it but it didn't mean anything and I think something inverse happens in the WSL I look at a team like Everton last season who more or less chucked their season in in about November and were able to really because Birmingham and Leicester were the two teams competing for that final relegation spot What I'd really like to see at the moment, I'd love to see a playoff maybe between 11th in the WSL and second in the championship. I just think there are too many teams who, particularly in the second half of the season, can coast 
or else, like I look at this Reading-Leicester game, I do think these are the two teams that are going to fight relegation. And we saw it last year. We could have had a bit of a relegation battle, but because Leicester beat Birmingham twice, that was it. It was over. Those two games had an outsized kind of impact. And I get the impression that Reading and Leicester might do that this year. And I just think there are some teams who could maybe do with you know, maybe thinking, oh, actually, if we finish 11th, we're not safe. I just think that might be better for the overall competitiveness of the league if more teams have things to play for. Moyo's nodding away. Yeah, I agree, to be honest. And I was saying as well that I did like when two teams got promoted from the championship. Like, the season United came up, Spurs came up as well, I'm pretty sure. And that sort of thing not only incentivizes people in the championship to try harder when they know that there's a greater chance of them coming up, but also, as Tim was saying, that it would incentivize 11th place as well in the WSL to do more. Because right now they're just seeing, okay, as long as I beat number 12, I'm fine. And I feel like, yeah, it's a bit of a deterrent for everyone else. The um, championship needs expanding desperately as well. I mean, the fact that only one team comes up from two leagues is outrageous, (laughs) quite frankly. It's just mad. But not just that, it's so competitive. It's, exactly. it's a crazy league and actually we'll, we'll round it up in part two, but that there are so many teams in that league from, from one to ten at the moment that could do something. Exactly that. And what are you saying to clubs that are investing and doing really well and doing everything right and building fan bases like Ipswich, like Southampton and stuff, when you've got this situation where they could win their league and not go up? <laughs> like that is just madness. It needs work. Same situation in the National League in, in men's football. Um, and as a Luton Town fan, I suffered from that for five five seasons <laughs> with just one automatic promotion. Just an absolute nightmare. Right. That's it for part one of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Part two, we'll round up the rest of the WSL results. And as I promised, talk about the championship. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Uh, Everton nil, Manchester United three. United equaling their longest ever winning streak in the WSL with five straight victories. That keeps them top of the league. Still yet to concede a goal as well, which is mightily impressive. Uh, Nikita Paris, Leah Galton and Hayley Ladd all chipping in with the goals here. How excited are you, Moyo? Or are you reserved still, bearing in mind it's just November? I said this year I'm going to be really optimistic and really be positive. Um, so I'm trying to say, yes, I'm very, very happy. I think United have started really well. Like I've been happy with what I've, I've seen as a fan, especially. And it feels as though they're going in the right direction. Like some of the points that we would have dropped last season, we haven't. So like, for example, the Everton game, teams like Reading. But yeah, so far, I feel like we've beaten teams that I would expect us to beat, which is why I'm still kind of like, let me calm down a bit. But I think the fact that we haven't conceded the goal yet is huge, especially for confidence with tough games coming up. But I feel like United players always get themselves up for games against Everton. So this one I was expecting a win, to be honest. But yeah, we've started really well. I've been happy so far. Mm, very measured, very measured. We'll revisit that question in, in a couple of months. Susie, Nikita Paris seems to be finding her form in this Manchester United side. We know that the Arsenal fit wasn't quite right, but it's great to see her back in form again. Yeah, and like I was almost a little bit sad. This is really cruel, I don't mean it this way, <laughs> to see Alessia Russo sort of coming back into the fold because 
she could potentially push Paris out again. You know, she's the superstar for England and obviously their first choice centre forward. But like Paris is a player who thrives off of consistency and regular game time. And she's just started to get that. And that's about to potentially be taken away or she's about to be shifted out wide again or something like that. And I think that's a real shame because she's a really great forward and she's had a tough time since leaving City at Lyon and Arsenal in terms of getting time on the pitch, getting regular football. And you sort of really sort of want to see her do well. She's a really nice person as well, which adds to it. You really want to see her getting a decent run so she can show what she can do again, I guess, because I think everyone has sort of forgotten exactly how good she is because she's not had enough time on the pitch. But um, obviously not sad to see Russo come back. It's going to be great to see her on the pitch again. But the downside for Paris is that it affects her, her game time or her positioning, which would be a shame. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting to see her coming into form. How much of a threat, Tim, are you seeing Manchester United? And I'm asking you this question from an Arsenal perspective. <laughs> As if I have any other perspective. Um, <laughs> well, of Manchester United's next four games, they have Chelsea um, at home, Arsenal away. Then I think they have Villa at home. Then they have Man City away. And I think we'll know more about their... Obviously, they're very much in that big four. I don't think anyone would ever have questioned that even before the season. But where they figure in that big four, I think, is going to be determined a lot by those results. You know, look, as an Arsenal fan, if I were a Manchester United women fan, to draw an analogy to the Premier League, Arsenal men are currently top. I'm not thinking about Arsenal winning the league. I'm thinking, let's just get in the Champions League. And that's how I'd be thinking if I were a United fan. I'd think, look... Let's try and get that third place. City, I think, are potentially vulnerable. And if it turns into a title race, great. But first priority is to finish third. And, and just on Susie's point around Nikita Paris and Alessia Russo, I mean, I think another one of the challenges United might have is Leon have lots of injuries and they need forwards. And I think they might come and test their resolve for Alessio Russo probably in January, not even the summer. And we've already seen United kind of, I don't want to say folded, they sold Jackie Gronin right at the end of the window. And I think that's had a knock-on effect in terms of how they're seen in the transfer market. And I wouldn't be surprised if Leon really banged the door down for Russo in January. And I think if United want to certainly be in the title consideration and, and definitely in the top three, they'll need to resist that, I think. That's a really interesting point, actually, Tim. And obviously, Moyo, that would be a huge test of Manchester United's resolve but their biggest test on the pitch of the season arguably is Chelsea visiting next Sunday still yet to beat them is this the moment yeah to be honest United fans that when we're about to play Chelsea we pretty much just surrender like in our heads that six points is gone um I think this is probably the first season that we're looking at that game at home and thinking, okay, we might be able to get something. I don't think a win, but like if we could get a draw, I think that would be a great result. I think Chelsea have shown they've got a couple of defensive frailties this season. I don't think they've quite worked out how yet to play Buchanan, Bright and Magda all together. And I feel like that is an area we can test, but we would have to literally be on top of our game in every area. We'd need on a back to your back and we'd need Russo sort of being able to play substantial minutes in that game as well. But yeah, I'm hopeful that we could get a draw, but I'm not, I wouldn't put money on it. 
Okay, that's a nice uh, link to Adam's question, Susie. He wants to know if Manchester United draw or even beat Chelsea this weekend, do we have to start considering them as genuine title contenders rather than just being, as Tim said, in a top three race? I think we already have to consider them as title contenders on the basis of the the way they've started the season. They're the only team not to have conceded now as well. Like I think they are in that conversation. I obviously think the conversation about Champions League is is a is a stronger one and better for them as well because it's less pressure um, than you know bumping them up into wait can we win the league now territory. So I do think we have to treat them as title contenders. They get anything off Chelsea and that only strengthens. Like this is a real test of United's character and whether they are ready to challenge for a title or not. So like this whole run of fixtures is the point at which we go, yes, they're title contenders or not. Because it's not quite the same that it's the head-to-heads that are going to choose the the league in the way it was before, I think. I think it's now potentially, you know, you look at Arsenal last season and that Birmingham game, it's, it's those kind of games, those banana skin games that are going to slip people up. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Mm. By the way, Tim, I just want to say you sounded very Arsene Wenger-like when you were talking about Arsenal just having the ambition to get a top four spot. Just just <laughs> sticking that in there. Uh, let's talk about your side, shall we? Arsenal 3, West Ham 1, going toe-to-toe, as we said, with United at the top of the WSL table. 100% record and came from a goal down as well to beat West Ham. Moyo, I don't know if you heard the pod last week, but we had a very in-depth chat about the need for teams to work out how to mark Dagny Brinners dotir at the start of games. And they were very lucky to get away with this because there was plenty of controversy at the beginning of the match. West Ham with that initial goal from her disallowed and it turns out quite spuriously. Yeah, I feel like the ref kind of thought that they'd made a mistake with the corner initially. But once you've decided it's a corner, you've just got to stand by that. Because there was no, I didn't see a foul happen when the corner took place. I think the goal should have stood. I don't think it was a corner, but I think the goal should have stood. But you can't backtrack to the the step before last and say it wasn't a, like, there was definitely not a foul and it wouldn't have been called a foul if the corner was given legitimately in the beginning. But Brynna's daughter, I don't understand that. It's like I've blinked and she's almost top goal scorer. And in the Euros, you could see how much of a threat she, that could be. But I feel like, this has taken it to a whole new level this season. It feels as though she's getting space on every single corner, which makes no sense because everyone knows she's the biggest threat aerially. But maybe she's just inevitable. That might be it. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's her. I find it just absolutely bizarre. Most of her goals have just been identical. And yet still, it's happening week in, uh, week out. Obviously, the opening goal wasn't, but, you know, she was there and and ready to pounce. And Tim, it was Jordan Nobbs who got the equaliser after Kim Little had to go off injured, which is a big worry for Arsenal fans. But Jordan Nobbs on the score sheet as well in the Champions League midweek. and, And it felt as if she really invigorated what was a sluggish Arsenal performance in the first half. Yeah, absolutely. I I literally just wrote like a whole analysis piece about this yesterday, but I'll spare you the 1500 words on that. Needless to say, <laughs> needless to say, basically what was happening was Arsenal were a bit sleepy at the beginning. They'd had a Champions League game on Thursday night and, you know, 1-0 down losing Kim Little kind of should be a bit of a crisis, but Jordan has all the qualities that Arsenal needed in that moment because 
she does and sees things really, really quickly. And Arsenal really needed someone to pick the pace of the game up. Um, and there was something a bit more tactical about it as well. West Ham were really clogging up that right wing around Beth Mead. They'd clearly identified that area and Jordan just stepped into it um, and really kind of loosened things up for Arsenal. But I'm I'm just delighted for Jordan. And like I've been conscious about not patronising Jordan Nobbs because there's been this big outpouring from Arsenal fans because she's so popular and she's been at the club for so long and she's struggled for minutes and... We all know what's happened for her on the international stage and she hasn't got what she's deserved. And I've been really conscious about not patronising this player who has nearly 300 Arsenal appearances and loads of league titles. But I, I am just delighted for her and particularly to get that time in the number eight position, which I think is her best position. And I still don't understand why Serena Wiegmann, Jonas our Arsenal, England, undervalue her in that role. I still don't entirely get it because when I see her play there, she just brings so much quality and I, I just don't understand why over the last couple of years, several managers have decided she can't play that position. I wonder if part of it is because it's such a a position that requires tenacity, but also needing a little bit of cotton wool put around a player that picks up injuries left, right and centre because you're just going in, breaking up play all the time and that's how you're going to gonna get injured. And it's, it feels sometimes if Jordan Nobbs is made of glass and it's been really difficult for her. Um, I want to talk about some really interesting comments from Jonas Eideval, Susie. And bear with me on this because it's about squad size. He says, if you're going to compete in Europe and you have a squad size of 23, that allows for more players to be in the match squad than the WSL. That will put you into a dilemma when you're building a squad to compete domestically because if you have a squad of 23 players when you play in the WSL, you need to leave three of those players off the bench. But in Europe, we could travel with 23 players. With a tight playing schedule, I really think we should have bigger squads but we should have the ability and availability to have all those players involved in exactly the same way in the Champions League as we have in the domestic competition. So Arsenal only have a squad of 21. Is this him saying that he can't incorporate 23 players just because he would have to leave some off the bench if everyone was fit? I think that is essentially what he's saying, is that you'd have a situation where you're picking players to travel with you in Europe that then you can't even have on the bench at home. I don't know what the impact that is, but I imagine on morale of the players that like travel with the squad and then are out of the the match day squad on the weekend and just, you know, sitting behind the bench out of contention, like that can't be the greatest feeling in the world. It also can't be great for them as players in sort of confidence of their manager in their ability to go out and perform. It's a, like, you know, if you've got the possibility of coming on in the Women's Super League and being a part of that squad, that's a certain level of football. And then if you're being asked to play that role at Champions League level, which is a level above, then, you know, that's a big difference. And there's no sort of like in between. So I can sort of understand what he's saying. I think it's slightly moot given pretty much every squad has injuries at some point and no squad is fully fit at any one time. So two or three players, is it a big difference? Not significantly at the moment because the idea of a squad being fully fit throughout the season and being able to be included in every single match day squad is not that realistic. But I can understand the frustration. Squads aren't big enough to allow for teams to compete across four competitions with the amount of games they've got full stop in 
the Women's Super League or the Champions League. Yeah, Monica wants to know, Tim, are Arsenal going to invest in the winter transfer window? If you hear Jonas Seidervall, then you would suggest not, but Susie makes a good point. Yeah, so I asked him at the beginning of the season about that. and I know Arsenal tried for a couple of players around the deadline, but I think work permits were an issue. He said he would definitely sign at least one player. Um, I think he's after another forward. I also think the situation with Gio Quiros on loan at Everton, she's not really getting many minutes. I think we're at the stage now where she probably would have got more minutes by staying at Arsenal. If that situation persists, I imagine Arsenal will revisit that situation in January and whether she goes back out on loan or stays with the squad. But I am absolutely certain that Arsenal will sign at least one player in January and maybe two. Well, we shall see. Manchester City 2, Liverpool 1. City avoiding a wobble against Liverpool. Hayley Rasso with the winner after Katie Stengler drawn Liverpool level following an opener from Bunny Shaw. I mean, it seems every week, Tim, that Bunny Shaw gets better and better. Another player that we're highlighting on the pod, which just shows the quality of the WSL this season. A goal and an assist for her on Sunday. And she's showing that she's so much more than just a target player as well. Yeah, definitely. I think she's probably really benefited from Ellen White retiring, um, which is not a slight against Ellen. But I think what was happening last season, there was lots of chopping and changing. And obviously Ellen and Bunny Shaw are quite different players. And I don't think Man City really got used to Bunny Shaw and her qualities. I think they definitely are now. Um, And particularly with that service from wide from Hempan Kelly. And obviously Chloe Kelly wasn't really fit last season. So the service from the right probably wasn't quite the same. But just look at a list of the top scorers in France over the last seven years. It's either Hegerberg or Katoto. There's only one player that's broken up that list, and that was Bunny Shaw at Bordeaux, so not one of the big two. So you already knew her pedigree before she came into the league, and I think she's just really benefited from perhaps Ellen White stepping aside and City having to make the decision, Bunny Shaw's our striker and we play to her strengths now, and I don't think we saw that last season. Mm. Interesting point, Moyo. Manchester City announcing this week that they're not going to be wearing white shorts from next season to try and help players feel more comfortable while they're on their periods. Uh, Aside from the fact that actually putting my clothing guru head on quite clearly as I sit here in my hoodie and jogging bottoms, burgundy shorts actually look very nice with the blue kit, don't they? Um, But it's actually a very important initiative, which we've already seen clubs like West Brom and and Stoke adopt as well. Yeah, because I think moves like this just indicate and show that brands are trying to make the players feel comfortable, which is the main, the most important thing when going into something like this. But like, also, you don't want players to have to think about other stuff other than football. You want to maybe take care of the ease of that and then make sure that they can just focus on football as opposed to thinking about football and, OK, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? So I think it just makes it a whole lot easier, but also for clubs to be able to focus on what they're there to do, which is to play football. Yeah, I think we'll see that happening more and more, I'm sure. Uh, right, over in the Championship, some interesting results. A big 1-0 win for Crystal Palace at Durham, despite Durham's midweek Conti Cup heroics against Manchester United. Uh, London City still second. They drew 0-0 with Blackburn. Lewis beat Coventry 1-0 and Southampton won 1-0 at Sunderland. Lucy Quinn got a 97th minute winner for Birmingham against Sheffield United, whilst Bristol City are continuing their unbeaten run. They beat Charlton 2-0, keeping them top of the league. London City Lionesses and Southampton, of course, who were promoted last year, a second. 
and third on 14 points, whilst at the bottom, Coventry are still pointless with seven games played. Uh, Right, moving away from the top of the pyramid now, we want to draw attention to something that Helen Hardy, founder of Manchester Laces, raised on Twitter the other day. Uh, Last week, we talked about the importance of the Rainbow Laces campaign and how women's football has been such an inclusive space over the years. But it doesn't mean it's always inclusive for everyone. Uh, And Helen has actually highlighted a really important issue. In August, I reached out to the FA and our Manchester League to support my club with guidance about a player who IDs as non-binary and has a female passport, but visually presents in a more traditionally masculine way. I wanted to ensure that they'd be safe and ask for any advice that they might have. The league and the FA didn't support the club, but instead removed the player from our online squad. After weeks of playing this person regardless, we've now had a notification that our game has been forfeited by the league and we may receive further punishment because we had this player in the game. Susie, we want and we all believe and talk about extensively the fact that football should be an inclusive sport. The FA, clubs up and down the country, all been promoting the Rainbow Laces campaign to show their support for that. But this seems like a case where actions are speaking way louder than all the words. Yeah, I mean, they've massively ballsed up, haven't they? Like, to be frank, um, they've just the whole way they've reacted to the situation is completely unnecessary. And to not go into dialogue with Helen at Manchester Laces to discuss it further and like talk about policy for players that identify as non-binary and things like that, that, that is madness in and of itself. But then, you know, a huge debate has exploded around whether... <laughs> Uh, this player should be allowed to play. And we're talking about amateur football here. What is it for, if not fun? And shouldn't anyone be able to play in the space that they want to play in, depending on how they identify? For me, like, at amateur level, that should be the case. And I know it's the case that mixed sex football takes place in a number of other countries around the world completely successfully at amateur level. Basically, it's almost like there's an implication that we're going to get a whole wave of men identifying as non-binary or trans trying to play in women's football to work their way up to professional level and like I feel like it's being taken to the extreme conclusion that somehow there's going to be some big controversy like that in any sport the likelihood of that happening is like 0.000001% like it is tiny uh, the likelihood of that happening so we should need to firstly stop considering that as like the norm and just talk about what is football for and why we play it and should people be able to play where they want and how they feel comfortable and for me that like is a no-brainer but the the idea that the FA have not engaged on it and have just kind of come down really heavy-handedly really unnecessarily and really unjustifiably is madness yeah it's something we'll keep an eye on and see because you know the, the FA have to come out and and say something for sure. And I know, Susie Rack, you are the person that will keep banging that drum and, and asking the right questions. Right, that's everything from us uh, this week. Susie, how is your week panning out at the minute? Off to St George's Park later for Savina Vigman's press conference, which should be an interesting one. And then a relatively quiet week working in the background before the Games next weekend. Yeah, very exciting. Some crackers next weekend. Tim, I assume it's the exciting call of the Midlands for you next week at Leicester? It certainly is on the National Express due to the train strike. So the glamorous lifestyle rolls on. Oh, love the train strikes. How amazing. Is that going to affect your late night trip to Lee to watch United Chelsea, Moyo? 
fingers crossed, no. Hopefully I'll be at that game. So I'm kind of excited. That'll be my first game this season. So yeah, super excited. And then we look forward to uh, speaking to you to find out whether you are still excited about Manchester United's season. (laughs) (laughs) Next time we speak. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Right, we'll be back next Tuesday to round up everything from the weekend's WSL action. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker Humphreys. Music composition was by Laura Iredale and our executive producer is Sal Ahmed. This is The Guardian.